You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Today is an introduction. It's an introduction of what we will be preaching from over the, over the summertime. Your slide says Malachi. We're going to be in three this summer of what the Bible calls the minor prophets. Malachi is one of the twelve minor prophets. Next Sunday we'll begin preaching from the book of Malachi. And then we'll preach from the book of Habakkuk. And then to end the summer we'll be preaching from the book of Jonah. We saved the most familiar of those for last. And so we're going to be talking a lot about the people of Israel in those prophets or from those prophets. And as we start down this road this morning, something I want us to understand, and this kind of ties in the John 15 passage, we need to understand that the Israelites have lost hope. They have lost hope, they've pursued other gods, they've broken covenant because they failed to look forward to the promises of God. We're not unlike them. And we need reminders like John 15 to abide in the vine It seems like every time that I preach or every time I do a a call to worship that somehow uh, 2 Peter 1.9 makes its way in and it's the passage that says we have forgotten that we have been cleansed from our former sins. Literally, literally, we forget the gospel. It's crazy, but we do and scripture speaks to that. We literally forget the gospel. We forget that we've been redeemed. We forget that we have been drawn from death to life. I know that sounds insane, but it's very true, and I think it's, it's true in our lives if we're honest with one another. As a result, just like the Israelites, we too lose hope. We too pursue other gods. We too break covenant with the one who sealed it with his blood, and we do it because we fail to look back to the promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning, I've been given a monumental task is twofold. One is to provide some perspective and some context for those three prophets in the scope of the Old Testament. And then the second thing is to give a very brief introduction to those three prophets. So we'll see how this goes this morning in your table of contents that you have before us. Take a look at that. When was the last time you actually looked at the table of contents other than to look, look up a book in the Bible that you didn't know where it was? And that's okay to do, by the way. There's no shame in that. That's why it's there. When you consider the overall scope of Scripture, the big picture, if you will, what do you think of? What comes to mind? You see before you in your table of contents all 66 books of the Bible, some of them quite familiar to you, perhaps some of them you've never even read, some of them you probably don't even know how to pronounce. Is it Malachi or is it Malachi? Is he Italian or is he Hebrew? Which? I don't know. Thank you for laughing at that. But how do you think of what you see before you? From Genesis to Revelation, uh, what are some thoughts that come to your mind? Do we see this as a resource book? Do we see these chapters as, as if they're chapters in a book? 
a resource book where, where we thumb through and find out what we're going through, and then we turn to that page and we read and we provide comfort for ourselves. Perhaps so. There's nothing wrong with that. But at times, if we look at it like that, we can see it as unrelated chapters of a book of resources. And that's not what Scripture is. It's actually a single unified story. It's the story of God. From a very broad view, then, this story is comprised of Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament is the promises of God, and New Testament is the fulfillment of those promises. Very simple, very broad. Perhaps if you're a note taker in that table of contents, next to Old Testament, write the word promise. Next to the New Testament, write the word fulfillment, and you will have a direct link between the Old and the New Testament. Promises, fulfillment. Promises, fulfillment. Very general, big purpose perspective. But if we focus in on this grand narrative a little bit more, we also think of this story in various episodes, if, if you like. And there's five primary episodes I want to, to mention in the outset right here. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, and recreation. Those five. Sometimes people have more, sometimes they have seven, the five, the seven C's, right? Sometimes there's less, maybe four. For our purposes this morning, I'm just going to have those five, creation, fall, promise, redemption, and recreation. The first three of those, creation, fall, promise, are all found in the Old Testament. They're found in the Old Testament. Perhaps as, as we focus in a little bit more on this story, and we look at the table of contents, Make sure, again, that you're not at the alphabetical listing, but the Old Testament and New Testament. Here's what I want to do. I want us to subdivide the Old Testament into three sections. Okay? So, again, if you're a note taker, you have my permission to write in your Bible. If you have one of our, one of our house Bibles, feel free to write down in there as well. You'll give the next person a head start. But here's what I want you to do. We're going to divide this into three separate sections. I want you to take and draw a horizontal line under the book of Esther. So between Esther and Job, draw a line for your first subdivision there. The second place I want you to draw a line is under the book of Song of Solomons. For some of you, it might say Song of Songs. Draw a line under the Song of Solomon. You have now just divided the Old Testament into three categories. What are they? What those categories are from Genesis to Esther, that first section is history. 17 books of history. The next section from Job to the Song of Solomon is poetry, five books of poetry. And from Isaiah to Malachi, prophets, 17 books of prophets, 17, five and 17. History, poetry, prophets. Creation, fall, promise contained in those three sections. That helps? Does that make sense? Hopefully that helps you as you survey Scripture and as you read Scripture. So it's within these three Old Testament categories that we see the creation, the fall, and the promise. Old Testament story is of God creating something out of nothing. Familiar story. We need to realize just how amazing that is. There was nothing and then there's something. God includes in that creation man and woman who are created to bear his image. And at first they do it perfectly. 
They're in the garden. They're in God's place, God's people under God's rule and blessing. But they end up doing it imperfectly because they rebel against the very God who has created them by believing a lie rather than trusting in God. And as a result, it's a catastrophic fall. We, each of us, experience this morning and probably already have that catastrophic fall in our own lives. Some of us are experiencing it right now. And that just shows us just how deep the fissure is of that original sin and the far-reaching nature of sin. But God, in His loving kindness, chooses to redeem rather than completely destroy by making a promise to this man named Abram who would become Abraham because names mean something in Scripture. He makes a covenant promise to make of Abraham a great nation of people who will in turn bless all people as God's set-apart people. If you're a recipient of that grace this morning, you are a recipient of that promise of God. Again, to show you how far-reaching the promises of God are. Yes, the curse was complete and affected everything. But so are the promises of God. If you're a redeemed person, you experience that this morning. Now we see creation and fall in the really the first few chapters of Genesis, but in a sense we continue to see it all throughout the Old Testament as we read story after story after story of God's people trying to live as his set-apart people but failing miserably because of the problem of sin. And we find this particularly in the historical books And in the poetical books, that's where we see that story of creation and fall being lived out over and over again. But we also see, woven throughout the story of the Old Testament, this beautiful thread, this beautiful thread of God's covenant promise to his people to make them into a great nation and to bless all peoples. We see this beautiful thread of the gospel all throughout the Old Testament. You see, God has a passion And he has a passion for his holiness. Sometimes we picture God as an angry and unjust God when we read the Old Testament. We get confused and we read these these areas of Scripture that are super focused on a one incident that has taken place. And some of it's absolutely horrible. But we, we, we see, and we see God as an angry and an unjust God. But we must realize everything read in the Old Testament has to be in the context of this covenant relationship with God as he draws people to himself into a committed relationship. And it's in this relationship that we see God's passion for his holiness and to see his people to be holy. This is the heart of our God. He's passionate about his holiness, but he's also passionate about you and I becoming holy people. This is the heart of our God. That's a beautiful God. It's not an ugly, unjust, angry God in the Old Testament. It's the same God as we read of in the New, of grace and truth based on His promises. So to get us to where we need to be today, as we set the stage to begin preaching from these minor prophets, um, let's fit them into this grand narrative of creation, fall, promise. And what I want to do ever so briefly is recap the entire Old Testament. So hang on with me here. We're going to re- reread in the Old Testament, as I said, how God blesses Abraham. 
Familiar, we're familiar with that. He blesses Abraham. It's through his descendants that they know prosperity. They know prosperity through his descendants. They are down into Egypt and they know slavery. Even though they increase in number, they know slavery. They're brought out of Egypt in the Exodus by Moses and God gives them the law to tell them and show them as my set-apart people, here's now how you're going to live as my special set-apart people. And he gives them the promised land. He gives them a place to be, but there's confusion over time and they live under the judges. They get a king for themselves, King David. And under King Solomon, they experience brief prosperity. Really, the kingdom of God on earth, God's people in God's place, the promised land, under God's rule and blessing in the temple was the spirit of the living God himself. We see a partial kingdom there. But Solomon, in many ways, is ungodly. And under him, his son Rehoboam, the kingdom splits into. The northern kingdom then is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And they both contain, or excuse me, they both continue on with kings, occasionally with some good kings. However, the general direction of their history is a downward spiral pretty quickly in the big scope of things. The northern kingdom's fate then, 200 years after the kingdoms divide, the kingdoms divide, the Assyrians attack the capital of the city of, in the northern kingdom called Samaria, and they destroy it, and they take the Israelites in the northern kingdom into captivity. All of this is done because the people of Israel, as Second Kings says, has sinned against the Lord their God. They're taken into captivity. The southern kingdom, Judah, fares no better. Even though they have the temple in their very midst, they turn to other gods, idols. There are periods where they are more faithful to God under King Josiah, for instance. However, it's not lasting change. And God keeps that promises that they'll be punished and banished from the promised land if they disobey. God is a promise keeper in that way as well. But again, this is because of God's holiness. God keeps his word and the Babylonians defeat Judah and they take some of them into captivity. And about 10 years later, the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is completely destroyed, and many more are taken into Babylon. So you're left with the northern kingdom in captivity by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom in the captivity, some of them in the captivity by Babylon. And after a period of about 70 years, a remnant is allowed back into Jerusalem to begin the process of rebuilding and occupying the land once again. And that's essentially how the Old Testament ends. In a nutshell, that is the story of the Old Testament. This history is found in those 17 historical books. Everything that I just said, everything that's very familiar probably to most of you, and more of course, is found in those 17 historical books. What then do we make of the poetical books that we talked about? Job through the Song of Solomon. Well, those books do not necessarily advance the storyline. If we think of Scripture as God's story, this big picture of God's story, found mostly or exclusively in the historical books, the poetical books don't advance the story as much as they amplify it. So they're amplifying that story. 
And they do that through these key themes that we see. We see key themes, for instance, in Job, the theme of faithful endurance, the, the theme of the Psalms of worship. Proverbs has a theme of skillful living, the theme of Ecclesiastes, vanity and the brevity of life, <clears throat> and, the, and the theme of Song of Solomon of love and marriage. But what about the prophets? What about the prophets? What, where do the prophets fit into that? Well, let's first talk about what the prophets were. What were their roles? The roles of the prophets were to be mouthpieces for God, to proclaim his words to others. Second Peter says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the prophets. There are prophets all over scripture. We read about them all over the Old Testament. Moses was perhaps the definitive prophet. Aaron was actually a prophet for Moses. Moses was slow of speech. So God said, that's fine. That's no excuse. I'll tell you what to say. Aaron will tell the people what you said that I said. Aaron is a prophet, a mouthpiece for Moses. Elisha and Elijah were prophets. And then we have prophets who actually wrote stuff down. And these are the prophets we see in our table of contents from Isaiah to Malachi. These 17 Prophets. A good way to think of the prophets as connected with this idea of the southern and the northern kingdom. The prophets are speaking into the lives of and events of Judah and Israel before, during, and after the kingdoms divide into. So some of the prophets were active in the northern kingdom. Some of the prophets were active in the southern kingdom. Some of them were active before the exile. Some of them were active during the exile. And some of them were active after the return from exile. That's the role, and that's what the prophets were doing. As we said, there's 17 of these prophets all together, and they're broken down into major and minor prophets, not because of the significance of their writing, simply because of the length of their writing. The major prophets wrote more extensively than the minor prophets, but they're all important because they're all breathed out by God. Well, what are these themes then we find in the prophetical books? It's a common theme. There are two dominant themes um, that we find in, in uh, the prophets, one of judgment and one of hope. Both of those centered around the covenant promises of God. Judgment. For example, first, it's important that we understand the prophets not just as predicting what Christ was going to one day fulfill in the future. These men were very much men about their time with a message of God's very present judgment based on their rebellion. If the people did not take God's warning seriously about breaking covenant, there would be significant consequences. Prophets stressed that the events taking place were not historical accidents. They were the fulfillment of God's promised judgments. They needed to know, for instance, that the fact that Jerusalem was defeated wasn't because God was somehow less powerful than the Babylonian God. It was because this is what God had willed. God is also a God of hope. To be faithful to his word, God has to judge his people, but that same word demands that judgment 
will not be the end of his dealings. God's going to judge, but it's not going to be the end of his dealings with his people, for he is a God of hope. Some of us today, that's all we need to hear. We just need to know that God is a God of hope. In spite of what we're going through, in spite of our circumstances, God is there. He's speaking into it through his word and through other people in your lives, and he is a God of hope. And ultimately, it's about him fulfilling his promises, drawing you to himself, and desiring you to be holy. Think of the prophets this way. If we think of the the 17 books of history as a commentary on the people of Israel's failures, the prophet were at times a commentator on their future hope. Now let's zoom in further on the prophets, specifically the minor prophets. As you look in your table of contents, beginning with Hosea through Malachi. Those are our minor prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel are major prophets. There is some nuance there. I won't go into it right now because we don't have time. But the minor prophets, these 12 that are comprised in one single scroll, as we know that the Word of God was not given to us in a nice leather-bound Bible, With the table of contents, they were in scrolls, and they were one complete scroll called the Minor Prophets. So let's look at them. There are three distinct time periods that the Minor Prophets lived in. And again, the first period is this time leading up to and surrounding Israel's exile. So the northern kingdom. The prophets in the first period were, were speaking right around the time leading up to and surrounding Israel's exile into the northern kingdom. And for that, it's the first six books that we have listed in our table of contents. So we've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah. Now there's a caveat there, a caveat, if you will. Um, Obadiah and Joel there is some ambiguity as far as the dating of those, so they're not necessarily in those first six. Again, we don't have a lot of time to go into that. But suffice it to say that Hosea, Amos, Jonah, and Micah were clearly that they spoke during that time. And they said a common theme of these prophets is a message of judgment and hope. But in this first section of these prophets, we see a unique prophet that conveys his message more through his life than through his actual prophetic words. I said that the prophets that we have in our Bible are the prophets who wrote. And obviously there's words on a page. And so some, but some of these prophets, most of these prophets, are words that they're preaching, words that they're saying, words that have been written down. But there's one particular prophet that has literally a sentence is his prophecy. The, the whole book is really more about his life than about his actual words given to Israel. His book describes, this particular prophet, his actions and his words in connection with an assignment that he found difficult to, to do from God, an assignment that was difficult to accept from God. And it's a slice of his life that we see, really probably just a couple of weeks that we see from his life. His task from God was to preach a message of repentance to the enemy nation of Assyria. Again, northern kingdom going into captivity by Assyria conquest. So he has a problem with this. 
It's a repugnant thought to this prophet because what happens if they actually repent and God shows mercy on them? That was a horrible thought to this prophet. What if God actually shows them mercy? It's unthinkable to this prophet. And of course, this is the story of God telling Jonah to go into Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, and to go and preach the message of repentance. And Jonah is stubborn and refuses. It's a familiar story to all of us. All, to all of us, we know it. And the point of the story is Jonah's hatred towards his enemy and the consequence of that hatred. But also, it's about God's compassion on his enemies. We think about God's compassion to us. We don't think of us as enemies. We are his enemies. We don't know Jesus. We are seen as the enemy of God. But God has compassion on his enemies. Jesus has a few things to say about how we relate to our enemies. What happens to Jonah and Nineveh happens because what God is like. So as the reader, we're invited into the book of Jonah to rethink our understanding of what God is like. God asks Jonah the question, and this is going to be an important question for us when we get to the book of Jonah. It will be the last of the three that we preach from later on this summer, and perhaps it's appropriate for some of us this morning. God asks the question, what right do you have to be angry? What right do you have to be angry, Jonah? What right do we have to be angry, Red Tree, when God has showered his love on us in mercy that we did not deserve and in grace that we get to live in and walk in every single day? What right do we have to be angry? The second period of time that the prophet spoke into was the time leading up to Judah's exile, so the southern kingdom. Israel in the north, southern kingdom, were Judah's exile, and that's books 7 through 9. So Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, those three, and it's very clear this is the time frame in which they spoke. It's within this group of prophets that we learn of a prophet struggling with his faith in God. And I think that's probably a message that we will resonate with when we get to that prophet. He believed that God could not tolerate wickedness because he's holy. However, he also noted that during that day, evil prospered, kind of like today, kind of like today. This prophet, Habakkuk, sought an answer from God that he would pass along to his audience. And the theme question of Habakkuk is, how can God use a wicked nation like Babylon for his divine purpose? How can that possibly be? Perhaps... You yourself has asked the same question this way. If God is good and loving, how can evil possibly exist? How can evil exist when God is this loving God? Well, for Habakkuk, no answer came to him to his satisfaction. He had only left his faith in God's promise to his people. So left without material, immediate material evidence of God's love for him, Habakkuk is left to pray. Is that what we do when we're left with no response from God? Do we diligently seek God through prayer, asking him what he is doing, how he is answering? Are we looking for the answer to our prayer? And since he's not answering it in our way, we figure, no, the answer is just, or he's not answering. Rather than the answer is no, not yet, wait, seek me. 
because I love you. And his prayer is this. Although the fields produce no food, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's from the prophet Habakkuk that the Old excuse me, the New Testament quotes in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, the familiar words, the righteous shall live by faith. That's where that phrase is taken from in those books. The third time period then is this time period of when Judah is restored. So again, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, we have the southern kingdom coming back into restoration, and it's found in these last three books of the Bible, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So this is a time when there's a remnant of God's people returning to the promised land. After about 70 years that has gone by, God's people are returning to the promised land. The second temple has been rebuilt and completed as encouraged by the prophet Haggai. However, this, this temple pales in comparison to the temple that was once was Solomon's temple. And so temple worship is in a sorry state and worshipers cheat God in sacrifices and tithe and the priesthood itself was in need of reform. They were apathetic priests actually leading people more into sin than out of it. Zechariah the prophet encourages people during this time to repent and renew the covenant with God to no avail. And then the prophet Malachi, the last prophet who is the first prophet that we will preach from beginning next Sunday calls the people to, res- to repentance. You've got to realize the people are a mixed bags of emotions. They're disillusioned people. They are cynical and callous and dishonest. They are apathetic, and some of them are outright wicked. And in a sense, you can't blame them. They're coming into this promised land. This isn't the same land they left. This isn't the, the, the example of a God that they love in the same way it once was. The temple is a, 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 again, it pales in comparison to what Solomon's temple was. And they come back into this environment, and it's only some of them, and they are just, they're just, they're bummed out. They're disillusioned. And as God's final messenger, Malachi's essential message to Israel was profoundly simple because the people of Malachi's day saw God as a failure. And so Malachi, in verse 1, chapter 1 of his prophecy, sums up his book by reminding his people, I have always loved you, and I always will love you. Doesn't mean there's not going to be consequence to your actions. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be some hard words given to you through the prophets. But I have always loved you, says the Lord. The book of Malachi is very much about injustice. And it's structured around God giving accusations to Israel, but then expounding on those consequences. And again, the reminder is, I have always loved you, and there is a proper response to that love. Because I've given you the ability to respond to me in the way that you need to. Malachi is structured like a courtroom drama. God is the accuser or the injured party before the court. And we see a clear redemptive aspect in Malachi in chapter 3. And he says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And that ends the prophets. And next week we will begin to preach from those three time periods of prophets, beginning with the prophet Malachi, and then the prophet Habakkuk, and we'll end up with the prophet Jonah. Why is all of this important, though? Why are we preaching from these prophets? Is it, is it only so I can stand up before you and give a boring history lesson, or perhaps at best, maybe some hooks to hang your Bible reading on? I hope that that has been helpful for you today as you engage Scripture. Uh, but that's not the reason that we're going to be engaging the prophets. That might be a result of it, but that's not the primary reason. Here's why it's important. Do we not lose hope ourselves? Yes. We lose hope. We pursue other gods. We forsake the covenant love of our God who is steadfast and faithful. And the reason that we do this is, as I said earlier, we forget what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're we're sheep, which means we're dumb. We need reminding of this time and time again. And we we were just reminded for a year and a half, almost two years, from a gospel of Mark. And quite likely, some of you left the building on many of those Sundays forgetting the gospel as you walked out the door. I know I did, so you're not alone in that. So we're going to come at it from yet another angle through the beautiful story of the Old Testament and the prophets and what they have to say to the people of Israel and the lessons that we can learn from that promise that is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we need to look back to. Jesus himself, however, makes it clear that in some way, Everything in the Bible relates to him. Everything in Scripture relates to him. His life, his death, his resurrection, his message of repentance and forgiveness primarily. How do we know this? Turn now to the book of Luke. You can use your table of contents if you need to know where that is, but I trust that you know. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 24. We're going to close out our time here in chapter 24 of Luke. Now, this is post-resurrection. To give you a little bit of a, of a, of a uh, prequel here. It's post-resurrection. Two of Jesus' followers are on the road to Emmaus. Again, a familiar passage. They're discussing the events of the day that have just unfolded. And the resurrected yet unrecognizable Savior sidles up alongside them. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, you must be a visitor because everybody knows what's been going on around here for the last three days. And he's like, what is that? He's like, Jesus of Nazareth, who we had hoped was the one who would redeem us, has died. And now there's these crazy rumors that he has resurrected and he's not in the tomb anymore. And so look with me in chapter 24, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning, listen, with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't it have been amazing to be discipled by Jesus himself? Walking along the road to Emmaus, what a beautiful thing. Later on in the day, Jesus materializes behind locked doors to his disciples. And he says, peace, peace, 
And they're a little freaked out by this because they hadn't seen Jesus since before he died. And he shows up amongst their midst in the apostles' room there. And uh, Jesus, in in the midst of calming them down, he says this in verse 44 of Luke 24. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand Scripture. Now, those three areas of Scripture mentioned, the law of Moses is the history. The prophets, guess what? It's the prophets. The Psalms is another word for poetry or writings. They just kind of lump that all into one. Jesus thought the Old Testament was pretty important to point to his Frightened and confused disciples. He pointed back to it to show them how it pointed to him. You see, if we believe what Jesus said about our joy in him, hinging on the word of God that we read about in John 15, then we need the prophets. We need the prophets. One one commentator said, to maximize our joy in Jesus, we need maximal scripture. What I take from that is that we should not pick and choose certain portions of God's word that comfort us in times of need only. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but not only. We must take in all of God's revelation because it shows us God's character and nature as evidenced specifically through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We all desire to be comforted. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be comforted in our times of need. The problem is, is what that comfort looks like. It's a natural and good thing, but sometimes we just can't find the comfort that we need, right? And often it's because we're looking in the wrong places. What we need to be looking for is a bigger, fuller picture of who God is. Our circumstances change. God does not change. Did you hear that? Our circumstances are going to change. Things are going to get better, then they're going to get worse again. God does not change. So our journey over the next several months in these often neglected books of the Bible, in Malachi and Habakkuk and Jonah, will point us to Jesus because he says they will. However, they don't simply point us to Jesus. They will show how we find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in Him. As we see the character and the nature of God in the minor prophets, may God stir our hearts with a fresh wonder about Jesus who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. The Old Testament, at the end of the day, the Old Testament is an unfinished book. It ends with needs that haven't been met, problems that haven't been solved, and tensions that haven't been resolved, much like our lives today. But the Israelites have this word from God through the prophets that promised a greater redemption than their forefathers experienced. How could they reconcile the limited nature of their redemption, what they came back to in uh, the promised land with these glorious promises that were made by the prophets? How could they reconcile those two? It's the same way we reconcile living in the already and the not yet. Jesus provides that reconciliation. 
That's what the prophets were pointing to. Jesus provides that reconciliation. Jesus accomplishes far greater redemption than just returning one people group to a rundown land. Jesus is the great king who rules over his people in perfect justice and righteousness. Jesus himself is the temple where God's people commune with him. Jesus is the better mediator of a better covenant, not only because he has written his law on our hearts by his spirit, but because he has taken upon himself the covenant curse of our disobedience. Listen to me. He has taken on the covenant curse of our disobedience. Jesus meets the needs, solves the problems, resolves the tensions left unanswered, unresolved, and unsolved throughout the Old Testament. And through the prophets, specifically of Malachi, Habakkuk, and Jonah, God will show us, he will show you, and he will show me that Jesus meets the needs, solves the problems, resolves the tensions left unanswered, unsolved, unresolved in your hearts. This is why we're preaching from the prophets. Let's pray. God, your word is much more living than we give it credence. We read from prophets of the Old Testament and we literally fall asleep. We literally fall asleep at the living, breathing word of God that pierces our soul, that convicts our heart. That for many of us at some point in our lives started to make sense to us. Even simple verses that say to live as Christ, to die as gain. Verses that were once unrecognizable and confusing became clear to us, God. And there's one reason. It's not because of our efforts. It's not because of our studiousness. It's because of your spirit. It's because of the fact that you've brought us from death to life. You've taken us from the depths of the ocean where we, in, we were incapable of reaching any sort of life preserver and the Holy Spirit came down and breathed life into our lungs, exposing the sin in our lives, giving us the ability to confess our sins, hanging on to our Savior Jesus for dear life. God, get us back to that. Get us back to the reality of us clinging to Jesus in a time of confusion in our lives in a time of uncertainty in our lives, in a time, of, a time of pain and anguish in our lives. Lord, give us the full Jesus, Lord. Help us to see him for who he is. Not for our comfort, something even better, our joy, but something even better to bless those around us, to show those who are unredeemed, who have only one option to live their lives as unredeemed people, to show them that there is something greater out there. And his name is Jesus. Stir our hearts, stir our affections. Do this work, O Lord. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.